About 30 years ago, Miss Mariah Ward of Huntington, with only £7,000, had the good luck to captivate Sir Thomas Bertram of Mansfield Park in the county of Northampton. I'm Harriet. And I'm Ellen. And this is Season 3 of Reading Jane Austen. For this season, we're reading Mansfield Park, beginning with chapters 1 to 3. But before we start on the chapters, there are a couple of things we wanted to say. The first is a reminder that there will be spoilers in our discussions. We wanted to emphasise this because, more than with Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice, people reading Mansfield Park for the first time may not be entirely sure how it's going to work out. It's a rich and complex book, and if you haven't read it before, we'll be giving away things you might not want to know in advance. It's also Jane Austen's most controversial novel. I think there are two main reasons for this. First, and most importantly, is the fact that the family has estates in Antigua, and so a connection with slavery. We're going to be looking at that in the historical section of today's episode. And the other is the character of Fanny Price, who is certainly Jane Austen's most divisive heroine. A lot of people really struggle with her, intensely dislike her, and can't understand how Austen came to write her. Obviously, we'll be talking about Fanny throughout the whole season. But just for context, we do both like her with some reservations, and more importantly, we don't see her as a complete anomaly in the gallery of heroines. Now, the last thing before we start talking about this week's chapters is to give a quick summary of the writing history of the book. The various authorities on the history of Jane Austen's publications tend to say that the book began in 1811, but it's very hard to dig up from them where this is said. As far as I can gather, it was said by a little scrap of paper that Cassandra wrote out at some time between when Jane Austen died and before her relations started writing on her. And she just noted down the dates of the different books. And that's where I think she said... It began in 1811. Well, when we look at it, Sense and Sensibility was published in November 1811. So if she started then, she must have started thinking about it while she was still getting Sense and Sensibility ready for the press. And then for the next year, she was also revising Pride and Prejudice because she actually sold it to the publisher in 1812 and it was published at the beginning of 1813. Mm. But what we do know, absolutely, from the letters, is that by January 1813, she was very definitely deeply stuck in to Mansfield Park because in a letter to Cassandra on the 24th of January, she notices she's going to have to change a little phrase where she's dealing with William seeing the women's hairstyles in Gibraltar and realises from a book she's been reading that there isn't a government house there, so she'll have to change the place where it happened to the commissioner's house. And the second one, which she wrote four or five days later, she's been talking about looking at the recently published Pride and Prejudice. And then she says, Now I will try to write of something else, and it shall be a complete change of subject, ordination. And then it was obviously finished by March 1814 because her brother Henry was reading it and she's really thrilled with the way he responded to it. 
and it was finally published in May 1814. Hmm. So I think one of the key things we get from that that makes it really different from Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility is that they were both reworkings of earlier material she'd written quite some years before. Yes. So this is really her first book that was conceived, written and published all in one section. So even if she didn't start writing in 1811, she yes. was conceiving it, she was thinking about it then. So it was much more compressed time frame. Which I think we're going, well, what I'm certainly going to be saying when we start talking about this section. Which means let's move on to this section. Chapters one to three of the book. Should we start with your hundred word summary? Now let's start with your hundred word summary. Okay. So, 10 year old Fanny Price is brought to live with her relations, Sir Thomas and Lady Bertram of Mansfield Park, arranged by her other aunt, Mrs. Norris, who is married to the rector. Her cousins accept her as a somewhat inferior part of the family, except for Edmund, who acts as a mentor to her. When Fanny's 15, Mr. Norris dies, and due to Tom's extravagance, Sir Thomas cannot afford to hold the living until Edmund is old enough to be ordained. The other financial concern is the estate at Antigua, and a year later Sir Thomas goes there, taking Tom with him. Yours is much more elegant and flowing than mine. Mine is very formal and stilted. Three Miss Wards marry the rich Sir Thomas Bertram of Mansfield Park, the Reverend Mr Norris and the impecunious Lieutenant Price. After a ten-year breach, Mrs Price appeals for help with her large family. Mrs Norris arranges Fanny's adoption and Fanny encounters the household at Mansfield where the two Bertram girls denigrate her. Fanny feels herself timid and forlorn but is comforted by Edmund. Mr Norris dies, yet Mrs Norris avoids having to house Fanny. Tom gets into debt, the living is sold. Sir Thomas, with Tom, goes to the West Indies to look into his non-prospering property there. When I started this, I thought, we're only doing three chapters, so it's going to be really easy to do a hundred-word summary. (laughs) But it turned out I had to leave out so many things I wanted to say. Yes. So, So let's get on and start talking about it. The thing I realised after I'd been looking at for a little while is these three chapters, though, they are fantastic. The way they prepare for the rest of the book mm. is so beautifully done. Yeah. You know, when we were talking about Sense and Sensibility, you said it was a total information dump. Yeah. No conversations at all. When we looked at Pride and Prejudice, there were all those little bits about the Bennets scattered right through the book. Yeah. In this one, she knows exactly what she wants to say. Yeah. And it's all there. Mm. And she does it magnificently because she manages to give a little bit of information and then in comes a discussion. Mm. The thing I felt about the first chapter was that what it does is it sketches in, in dialogue, the relationship between the Bertrams and Mrs Norris. Mm. In the second one, you get Fanny's character and Edmund's relation with her. And author, you actually, and I hadn't really picked this up until I was reading it closely this time, the relationship of Fanny, not just to Edmund, but also with Mariah and Julia and Tom. The foundations are set. They all have affection for her. A bit of an afterthought, a bit dismissive, but, you know, it says that, well, the girls, they say that Fanny was good-natured enough. But she's obviously useful there. When they're wasting gold paper, there's Fanny probably collecting up the scraps for them. Yes. And doing things for Tom when he's there. And again, I think this sums up Tom's character as well. 
His kindness to his little cousin was consistent with his situation and rights. He made her some very pretty presents and laughed at her. Tom comes across as not an ill-natured person, but thoughtless. Yes. And yeah, that again is setting up Tom's personality for the whole rest of the book. Yes. And the other thing it says is there was no positive ill nature in Mariah or Julia. And though Fanny was often mortified by their treatment of her, she thought too lowly of her own claims to feel injured by it. So she's always accepted as maybe not part of the family, but she's always there. They don't find her a problem. They just kind of don't notice her, but don't mind her being around. The one thing that is absolutely wrong for her is Mrs Norris. Yes. Right from the very beginning. Yeah. But also you've got this preparation to like Edmund. She wants you to like Edmund Mm. and so she gives that beautiful little scene. Yeah. Remember Mrs Bruton where Jane Austen complained about not having natural possible everyday things? And in that little scene with Edmund, it's one of those things that if you've ever dealt much with young children, that's the way it happens. You know, when I was teaching, a child would turn up in a terrible state and you'd sit down with them and you'd say... Did you leave something at home? No. Have you had a fight with somebody? No. Was your mum cross with you? Yes, they'd say, burst into tears, and it had all come out. And that's exactly the pattern Mm. that she has happen in that scene. Mm. And I'm sure nobody had ever done that before. Mm. She just could pick up those natural, everyday way of things happening. Mm. Because, of course, this is the only one of her books where we actually properly see the main characters as children. And I also noticed she she very carefully, again, spread throughout the chapter, but we're given the exact ages of everyone. So we know when Fanny arrives, Tom is 17, Edmund is 16, Mariah is 13, Julia is 12, offstage William is 11, and Fanny is 10. Yes, I felt we could pick up here the beginning of something about Fanny's character because of how she turns into be that useful little helper to Lady Bertram. And we get told that she has this memory of the brothers and sisters among whom she had always been important as playfellow, instructress and nurse. Yes. So we've got this picture of her as a truly helpful watching sort Mm. of person. And she is doing this same watching and being helpful once she's arrived at Mansfield because you've got Lady Bertram saying that she saw no harm in the poor little thing and always found her very handy and quick in carrying messages and fetching what she wanted. But it does seem, though, when she was at home, she had been important as playfellow, instructress and nurse. Yes. She moves to Mansfield and her personality gets crushed. She loses her importance. She's no longer an instructress. She's helpful proactively helpful but she moves into this more subservient role it does say right from the start she was shy but I guess basically you get the sense that she's come to Mansfield and her self-worth has taken this massive hit she's just so reduced the dimensions of what she can do and what she is yes and then I suppose the other thing that comes through is her relationship with Edmund. But one of the things that I got quite interested, though, is that description. What Jane Austen is saying is he formed her mind. But I can't help having the impression also that she was really useful to him. There he is, this very serious boy, wanting to be a clergyman, wanting to work out how to be good. 
And so he's coming home for the holidays with all these ideas mulling around in his head. Who can he talk to? Fanny. Mm. And she's clever. Yeah. And she'll read. Yeah. But it is, though, probably still something of an echo chamber because, as Jane Austen said, he had formed her impressions. So, of course, she was going to think like him. So her presence, I guess, helps him articulate his thoughts. She's a sounding board for him, but she's not going to challenge him. No, but he's probably complimenting him, though, because she's clever. She knows what he's talking about. But their values, their principles are more or less identical. Once again, the book starts with talk of money. Oh, yes. And if we're looking at money and background, if we compare the Miss Wards in this book to the the former Miss Gardeners in Pride and Prejudice, Mrs Bennet has £5,000 and was the daughter of a lawyer. Yeah. Miss Mariah Ward, and therefore we assume all three Miss Wards, have £7,000 each and are, well, their uncle is a lawyer. So they actually come from quite a similar background that sort of, of the, the profe- professional class not the gentry or the professional class that wants to think of itself as yes. gentry that top level of a country town society yes. which is as i said it's very very similar to mrs bennett and mrs phillips background there's a little bit more money but socially very similar and thinking on from that a couple of other thoughts i had obviously miss mariah ward elevates herself much higher than anyone from the Gardner family did. Yes. Mrs Norris elevates herself perhaps not quite as much as Mrs Bennett did, but more than Mrs Phillips did. Mrs Phillips stayed in that in that society. That society. But Miss Frances Ward actually ended up much lower because yes. her life is considerably less affluent, less genteel. And you know, Mrs Phillips' life is borderline genteel. Yes. But Mrs. Price's life is much lower. Yeah. Which I just thought was interesting seeing all the different directions you can go from that same starting place. Yes. And the other thing that I thought of, we see that Sir Thomas, like Mr. Bennett and like Mr. Palmer, has obviously married a woman for her beauty, even though she's intellectually inferior to him. Yes. But... Unlike Mr. Bennett and Mr. Palmer, he hasn't retreated into cynicism. He still treats Lady Bertram with absolute respect. Yes. But there's never any sense that he regrets his marriage. There's never any sense that he... He's putting her down and and he adapts to her. She doesn't want to go to London. He doesn't go. Yeah. Oh, we need to also mention, because it is so funny and so good, is the scene where... Julia and Mariah are reporting on Fanny <laughs> and, and we come to, to all the things they know. How long ago it is, Aunt, since we used to repeat the chronological order of the kings of England with the dates of their accession and most of the principal events of their reigns? Yes, added the other, and of the Roman emperors as low as Severus, besides a great deal of heathen mythology and all the metals, semi-metals, planets and distinguished philosophers. It's just the lovely juxtaposition there. Yes. The distinguished philosophers in with the planets and the metals. (laughs) But that sort of leads into what I think we both feel is one of the main thematic concerns of Mansfield Park, which is education, because... I think, and I think I've probably got this from you, the whole book really seems to be 
talking about how it's so important for education to include, I suppose, moral education. Right at the end of the book, you have Sir Thomas reflecting on how principal, active principal, had been left out of his daughter's education. But even here, right at the very start of the book, we get told that for all of their talents and early information, they should be entirely deficient in the less common acquirements of self-knowledge, generosity, and humility. In everything but disposition, they were admirably taught. So it's again, as you were saying, everything you need, this whole book is so beautifully, beautifully set up in these first three chapters. Yes. What we don't know is how it should have been you know, we know all the sort of education they were given and how they were even taught by Mrs Norris not to show how conceited they were, that mm. the important thing was not to show it. But we don't know how he thought it should be taught to them because well, he, we've got Fanny who's had nobody teaching her anything. To a certain extent, she's, I think, probably something of a blank slate when she arrives. No, she's got the strong desire to be good. True, yeah. Whereas the girls have only got the strong desire to be admired. Yeah. I guess what you're meant to think or what you're meant to glean as you're reading the book is that Edmund was away at school. The girls just had their governess and Mrs Norris. And the governess was probably very heavily influenced by Mrs Norris because the governess wanted to keep her job. And Mrs Norris was all about appearances and not so much about the principle beneath it. Well, again, once you get into the Victorian period, the place where this is usually given to children is supposed to be by their mothers. Yeah. With their mother hearing them say their prayers and chatting to them about being good or even by having often very religious nurses mm. and nursemaids teaching them yeah. these things. I think the only thing Lady Bertram taught the girls in terms of how to be good is to not tease Pug. Yes. Well, Mrs Norris is the one who's setting who's their... setting the moral tone of their upbringing. Yes. I mean, it's just how people get principles is really odd in the Jane Austen because how do the Bennet girls get their principles? No, but it's definitely there what you're saying about mm. this question of principle mm. coming all the way through. Yeah. That's everything I had on these first three chapters. We've just got favourite sentence to do now. Have you got one? This is one of those sentences that I might not have really picked up on myself if it hadn't come up in Sheila K. Smith and G.B. Stern talking of Jane Austen. How when they're liaising with Mrs. Price over her difficulties and it says, Sir Thomas sent friendly advice and professions. Lady Bertram dispatched money and baby linen and Mrs. Norris wrote the letters. And as they said in Talking of Jane Austen, can you just imagine the tone of those letters that Mrs yes. Norris is writing? But again, as with everything else in these first three chapters, it so encapsulates the relationship between those three people. Well, actually, the one I was going to read was also on Mrs Norris, but it might be better if I choose one on Sir Thomas. There will be some difficulty in our way, Mrs Norris, observed Sir Thomas, as to the distinction proper to be made between the girls as they grow up, how to preserve in the minds of my daughters the consciousness of what they are, without making them think too lowly of their cousin, and how, without depressing her spirits too far, to make her remember that she is not a Miss Bertram. I mean, that's something Fanny has to contend with. <laughs> I think, though, what you have is that Sir Thomas is thoughtful and concerned about this. Yes. Mrs Norris, on the surface, 
says yes, but then is continually pushing Fanny further down than... And does absolutely nothing about persuading the daughters not to think too badly of Fanny. Yes. Yes. The character we're going to be talking about in this episode is Mrs Norris, who I was wondering... Is she the worst of Jane Austen's villainous women? Absolutely, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. But she is an absolutely realistic character, I think. Mm. She's still a bit exaggerated. She's a fully realised character. Mm. I mean, I think that's yes. the appalling thing. She's a beautifully realised, she's absolutely natural, possible and everyday. Yeah. We see her. Yeah. doing these terrible things and we see what she's like in the very first mm. chapter so thomas doesn't see what she's like though so thomas has known her for decades and it's only in the second half of the book that he yeah, well, starts because, to realize because, what she's well, like well i mean because she is moderately good at what she does you know what she wants to do is organize things and be bossy and she's worked out how to mm. work on sir thomas Mm. Also, probably, he's a bit relieved to have someone to do all the things Lady Bertram should be doing that she won't do. Well, there's that. I suppose the thing that bothers me is why did she say, let's take Fanny? Because she wanted to feel important and organising, I think. Yes. But yeah, it it doesn't make a lot of sense. Did she, in fact, want someone that she could... She could boss around because her role in that household is, after all above the governess but below Lady Bertram. What she's doing is she's being semi-unpaid housekeeper. Yeah. Though, I mean, she she bosses the servants mm. in a way Lady Bertram doesn't yeah. want to. But, you know, you've also got the feeling of Mrs Norris was awful, but you get the impression that it's not just she wanted somebody to be nasty to. I mean, she, she's enjoying it. Mm. But there is something in Fanny that brings out the sadism in her. Yes, that's true. She knows she can she can make life miserable for Fanny mm. and enjoys doing it. Mm. Maybe if Fanny was not quite so meek. Yes. Maybe if possibly Mrs Norris is profoundly irritated by Fanny's ill health. Yes. Um, Fanny not being a strong child. Because yes. Mrs Norris is obviously physically incredibly strong and probably has no patience for someone who has a headache because she thinks if they just put their mind to it, they wouldn't have a headache. I think she would always have been setting up Fanny at at the bottom of the hierarchy. Yes. Because Mrs Norris can't boss around Mariah and Julia. But you just wonder what it meant to her to suddenly have that job of being able to take the girls into company. Oh, I think she loved it. Oh, oh, no, absolutely loved it. But unbelievably lovely with Sir Thomas not there. Mm. So she can do it all her own way. Mm. I mean, she can queen it around in a way she couldn't if Sir Thomas was there. Mm. Sir Thomas is away for about two years, I think. And while he's away, Mrs Norris's level of control is unchecked. Yes. Up until then, she's been checking herself she's been walking a fine line to make sure she doesn't antagonize sir thomas with him gone she has no checks she can do whatever she wants and so when he's come back she finds it harder to rein herself back to where she was a couple of years ago and that's when his opinion of her starts to drop yes do we think she's a self-deceiver i don't think she can be too much of a self-deceiver in terms of her treatment of fanny 
But, oh no, I'm sure she's a self-deceiver there. But what she sees is there she is. She's in this situation where it's up to her to train up this little creature that's been yeah. brought in. And, and she feels, she tells herself that she's done this wonderful thing in giving this little child an opportunity in life. That yes, she but the real problem for her with Fanny is when Mr Crawford proposes because she doesn't want Fanny to marry him. Yeah. Quite apart from she thinks he should have gone to Julia, she obviously doesn't want Fanny moving out of her proper place. Yeah, she doesn't want to see Fanny so elevated. Yes. Mm. And that comes back to her intense dislike of Fanny. Yes. But I think the other thing she probably absolutely can't stand is the idea that Fanny, who has always been below her in the pecking order, will suddenly jump above her in the pecking order. Yes. And I think that would just drive her demented yes she's so officious in terms of treating the servants right and how we must always think about the servants and well that's what she's saying yes but her actual treatment of the servants is probably fairly appalling but she's always telling others about how we must be considerate of the servants how we mustn't keep the horses waiting how we mustn't keep the coachman waiting possibly because these people have got a certain amount of line to Sir Thomas. I think that is just more of her making herself important and managing. Oh, right. So I, I think you it's... want the coachman to do this. I think we yeah. must think of the coachman. Yeah. We must think of the coachman and therefore we must do things the way I want us to do them. Yes. There's that lovely scene later on where she officiously tells Sir Thomas, we have arranged for one group to go first and then the coach will come back for the rest of us. And Sir Thomas agrees because that was actually the plan he had told her about. Oh, yeah. she, she always has to be making herself important and part of the planning process. Yes. And maybe there's some level of fear that if she's not always busy and organising things, then she won't be able to be at Mansfield as often. Although yes. I think that in that case, she's just completely misreading Sir Thomas. Yes. The other scene I love with Mrs Norris is when they're coming back from Southerton and she talks about how the nice old gardener gave her this beautiful little heath that he made her take it and nothing would satisfy that good old Mrs Whitaker but my taking one of the cheeses. I stood out as long as I could till the tears almost came in her eyes and then Mariah says, what else have you been sponging? Yes. And her response, sponging, my dear, it is nothing but four of those beautiful pheasant's eggs which Mrs Whitaker would quite force upon me. So, um, she's obviously convinced the staff at Southerton to give her all this stuff. Yes. And as turned it around in her head or maybe she and they well, have danced this dance. Mrs Whitaker knows that Mrs Norris has dropped hints about giving the pheasants eggs and so has yes. to give them to her but she's she's both shameless and self-deceiving. Well it's hard to say how self-deceiving but it seems to be there yes. Mm. That was your favourite bit. My favourite bit is the one where the little boy, the carpenter's son, comes up saying he's got to get some boards for his father and he comes up just at the time when the servants are having their lunch mm. and she tells him to go away. I just love that. There she is. She's so proud of herself for having defeated this little 10-year-old <laughs> boy who's up there trying to scrounge a meal. Mm. But the final thing with Mrs Norris is, does she have any redeeming features? Obviously she's, I think we'd have to say miserly, not just economical. She's sadistic towards Fanny. She's managing to a ridiculous degree. She's something of a self-deceiver. She's a terrible crawler, which is a bit sad in a way that, you know, instead of just being her own person, mm. 
Well, the sad thing is she would always have been welcome at Mansfield Park. Lady Bertram is her sister and her husband is Sir Thomas's great friend. I suppose maybe she feels that doing all this work gives her an actual place at Mansfield Park rather than just being there as, as a welcome visitor. And she likes being busy. And important. Yes. She likes being busy and important. Yes. There's the other thing, though, that I suppose you can say is the good thing about Mrs Norris is that she sticks with Mariah. Mm. When Sir Thomas won't have Mariah home again. She goes against him. She's always up till now wanted to please Sir Thomas and now she's doing something that doesn't please him. And she's walking away from Mansfield Park which is everything she's been trying not to do. Everything up until now has been making sure she has a place at Mansfield Park for eternity. Yes. And now she walks away from it for Mariah. Of course, you know, Mrs Norris having done that and for all the love she has for Mariah, Jane Austen makes it pretty clear that they don't in fact have a very happy time living together no so basically i guess circling back to the beginning in spite of a couple of redeeming features i think of all the nasty women in jane austen fanny dashwood is the only one who even comes close to mrs norris in sheer horribleness but on the other hand when we're looking for a fully rounded character mrs norris is absolutely magnificent Mm. A wonderfully conceived character, Mm. wonderfully presented. All the different sides of her are there. Really a magnificently presented character. Mm. Mm. And Jane Austen's obviously recognising this because so much of these introductory chapters are laying the foundation Mm. for Mrs Norris. Mm. In the historical section for this session, I'm going to be looking at the background to Sir Thomas Bertram's plantation in Antigua. And before we continue, I'd like to say that Damian Scott, who runs the Facebook page Black Girl Loves Jane, very kindly listened to this segment for us after we recorded it. She's made some very useful comments, which I'm going to add in at the end. In the 1500s and 1600s, Portuguese traders captured and enslaved people from Africa to work in the Portuguese colony of Brazil and the Spanish colonies of South America. But they didn't have the trade to themselves for long because this is a time when the British private ships are roaring around the globe and pretty quickly they entered into the trade of enslaved people. In 1625, though, the British captured Barbados in the West Indies, and in 1655 they secured Jamaica by the early 1700s, which is probably about the time Sir Thomas's family got hold of that plantation. A triangular traffic had been established between the maritime nations of Europe, the east coast of the Americas, and the west coast of Africa. This very much involved Britain, as well as Spain and Portugal and France. British enslavers sailed from ports including Glasgow, Liverpool and Bristol to West Africa. There they managed to pick up people who'd been enslaved by fellow Africans, who then sold them to the traders. It's worth noting that while a lot of these people were enslaved by African kings and then sold. Some African kings absolutely refused to take part in it. So we we can't say that all the African kings were involved in this, but some were. 
They were then taken by way of what was called the Middle Passage, which was this trip from Africa to the east coast of America. And this trip across the Middle Passage became notorious for the horror and the misery that was caused to the people being moved. I think you've got some figures. Yes, well, apparently historian estimates suggest that even before they were put on the ships, about 4% of enslaved people who had been captured and put in forts awaiting the ships, about 4% of them died before even being put on the ship. They were locked up in cellars and jerry-built castles and that sort of Mm. thing just to hold them. And nobody seemed to worry. And then once they were put on the ships, it was incredibly inhumane treatment. The amount of space they had on the ships was just tiny. And they were often actually shackled to one another. Yes. Apparently, again, historians estimate about 12.5% of enslaved people who were put on the ships didn't survive the voyage, which is a huge percentage. Lots of them died from disease. Some committed suicide by jumping overboard. It was just unbelievably horrific. But this awful middle passage was just part of this when they were brought over to the Americas. The enslaved people were then sold off to various forms of plantation and their life was, well, in many cases, was not much better than what they'd been put through beforehand. And people with this background would have been working on Sir Thomas's plantation in Antigua. Why this trade was called triangular was that the sugar, the cotton, the tobacco produced by these people were taken all the way back to Europe and then spread through Europe from there. And then the ships set out with British manufactured goods, or mainly with sort of with rum, with guns, with gunpowder, with metal goods, and they took those round to Africa, which were then sold and the enslaved people were then exchanged for them. Mm. But the outcome of this for the British economy was a large influx of wealth coming in from people who had made their fortune in these plantations in the West Indies. And a lot of them were doing what people so often did when they made a fortune. Overseas they came back and they wanted to then turn themselves into successful parts of the British class system. Mm. So you got them buying up landed properties or marrying their daughters to people with landed properties and obviously at some point in the past this has happened to the Bertram family. So the people with all this money are integrating themselves into British society but when one thinks of the triangular trade you have to take into account that it was not simply the plantation owners and their children who were benefiting from this all sorts of people throughout the whole of Britain were making money from it. You know, when you get in Jane Austen, some of these people who've made their money in trade, like the Bingley family, like Mr Gardner, like Mr Weston in Emma, all these people have made money. And some of the trade could have been importing sugar, importing tobacco, importing cotton. And of course, they were able to import these raw materials from the Americas on the backs of enslaved people. But it wasn't even 
just the people who were making money out of it. I went to a talk by Catherine Hall in 1992, and this has been said many times since, but I was most impressed hearing it for the first time then, when she was saying, if you look at the whole British way of life, she said, we have our particular kind of cookery, and it's based on sugar. It's based on jams and preserves and puddings and pies and cakes and tarts. And that's seen as traditional English cooking. But all of that is based on the the ability to get cheap sugar from the West Indies. Mm. But by the end of the 1700s, more and more was being spread about the horrors of the transport ships and what the conditions were like. Mm. And by the beginning of the 1790s, you've got abolition societies rising up. This is where William Wilberforce was significant. And so by the time you're coming up into the early 1800s, these abolition societies are spreading and you've got a really big movement of pushing for the abolition of slavery. And little bits of it pop up in novels even later in one of the Mrs Gaskell novels. There's an evangelical clergyman who refuses to eat sugar anymore, saying he can see blood in it. And there was this big pressure. And in 1807, there was an act for the abolition of the slave trade. But of course, that didn't stop the exploitation of enslaved people on the plantations. So so what that meant was that the taking of people from Africa was made illegal, but, but it was not in any way illegal to continue to run a plantation with enslaved people. And if those enslaved people had children, they were also enslaved. Yes. And this is what would have been happening on Sir Thomas's plantation. Mm. In a sense, there was a sort of a bit of a a lull, but more or less, even from the passing of the 187 Act, there were some people still pressuring to get rid of slavery, though it wasn't all that strong during the time Jane Austen was writing. But the pressure gradually built up through the 1820s until in 1833 there was an Act of Parliament got rid of all slavery in the British Empire. But of course, even when sugar was now free of that particular taint, Britain was still making use of enslaved labour because it was building up the cotton industry. And until the 1860s, they were still importing their cotton from the southern states. Mm. But that, of course, didn't happen till well after Jane Austen had died. She dies in 1817 when the whole movement for total abolition is only just picking up. But by 1814-15, she is reading this book by Clarkson, which the notes tended to say was a book on the abolition of the slave trade, and she was very keen on that. She was moving with the more enlightened people of her age to a stronger and stronger disapproval of the whole use of African people. What you're seeing is you're seeing this whole abolitionist movement growing. Some people at the beginning are very strong. I don't think the Austins ever were. But by 1840, you've got her brother Henry is being a delegate to an anti-slavery congress in London. There's a really interesting YouTube video, which I'll put a link to, where... Devaney Lucer talks about 
all the historical evidence she has found of the Austen family's connection with and views on slavery. Yes. But anyway, how does this apply to Mansfield Park? Well, obviously, what you've got is Sir Thomas's plantation is right up at all the abuse and exploitation. When you look at the evidence for it, it also looks as though it was an inherited plantation because Mrs Price knows about it. And that was that was after a 10-year no contact. And it's not he just owns the property. He's relying on the profits from the plantation. Mm. So presumably he goes to Antigua to get rid of the management he's got there and find a new manager, perhaps some new overseers, something like that. So what this really means is that everyone in the trade class, the gentry, the aristocracy were all complicit to a greater or lesser extent because everyone was was benefiting. So every character in Jane Austen's books is complicit. But the difference here is that we know that Sir Thomas was directly engaged with enslaved people. Yes, But you've got Jane Austen. She has to get Sir Thomas out of the way. So where can she send him? Well, she could send him to the East Indies, to India, or does she send him to the West Indies? She chooses to send him to the West Indies. What can he do in the West Indies? He has a plantation, as many people in his position did. Mm. Well, then, how have modern readers responded to this aspect of Mansfield Park? Well, no, I do have to say that when I first read Mansfield Park, I was shocked. And I started to get pleased every time you got a little hint that Jane Austen, that she saw the point of abolitionism. But at that time, I then just saw it as the the very worst end of all this dark underside of the society Jane Austen was writing about. You know, the Bennets having these huge dinners with four and twenty families, while the people that did the work were lucky if they were having a slice of bacon with their meal, that it went with anyone who was caught poaching being transported to Australia, all the floggings that were happening in the army and the navy. That's something that you have to do if you read Jane Austen. You have to realise that these people are living a very privileged life and they're benefiting from dreadful lives that other people are living. I first read Mansfield Park in the 1950s, but through practically all my reading life for the rest of the time, nobody really mentioned slavery. No, we just looked up recently that when the New Oxford Companion to English Literature was printed in 1985, there was absolutely no mention of the plantation issue. That was the same for me. I looked at the introduction in my Penguin edition, And that's a 1980s edition, but hadn't actually been changed, I think, since the 60s. And it makes no mention of slavery at all. Whereas by contrast, if you go today and you look up Mansfield Park in Wikipedia, among the subsections in it, one of them is Mansfield Park and slavery. It's part of the discourse now in a way it just wasn't for such a long time. Yes. John Sutherland seems to say that it was very much started when Edward Said wrote an essay on Mansfield Park. Yeah, I've got that written down. In 1993, Edward Said published Culture and Imperialism, which was a collection of essays, one of which was called Jane Austen and Empire. But in that essay, Said drew attention to the slavery implications of Mansfield Park. 
He saw Mansfield Park as demonstrating the way Europeans chose to view their momentous impact on the rest of the world as something natural, inevitable and not to be questioned. Mm. He wasn't saying Mansfield Park of itself is a wicked book. He was saying Mansfield Park, which is a really marvellous book, is nevertheless a demonstration of this particular way European thinking interpreted imperialism. Mm. I think he was saying this illustrates the prevailing mindset at the time. Yes, he's using Mansfield Park as an example. But what that seemed to do was to suddenly spark this absolutely essential thing. When I was reading Saeed, one of the bits I highlighted as part of what kicked off his influence of including this in part of the discourse on Mansfield Park, is he said, we must not say that since Mansfield Park is a novel, its affiliations with a sordid history are irrelevant or transcended, not only because it is irresponsible to do so, but because we know too much to say so in good faith. But then he also said, Austen belonged to a slave-owning society, but do we therefore jettison her novels as so many trivial exercises in aesthetic frumpery? I think... Post-Said, awareness of slavery has to be part of the discourse on Mansfield Park because, like he said, it's irresponsible not to. And there have been massive amounts written, and I've barely skimmed the surface. But from what I've read, there do seem to be broadly four types of approach. Yes. One is for people to just completely reject the novel because the slavery connotations make reading it too painful. And I think this is... We all bring our own life experience to reading. And since the slavery connection is basically unarguable, I I don't think anyone needs to defend their position if they just can't read the book. No, absolutely. Another thing I've seen, and I don't know how prevalent this is nowadays, it's people trying to find ways of justifying that Sir Thomas may not have had enslaved people on his Antigua property. John Sutherland's book, Is Heathcliff a Murderer? It has a chapter on where does Sir Thomas's wealth come from. And he says, since Jane Austen says nothing specific on the subject, the Bertrams could have had a farm supplying produce and timber to other plantations. And then he goes on to say, or maybe the reason they're not doing well is because they're raising a crop other than sugar, or maybe they're not treating people harshly. And the thing seems to me is, yes, they're not real people. So if you want, you can decide if there's historical basis that that... But when Jane Austen says he has property in Antigua, what does she expect her audience... I would imagine she expects her audience to think the most likely thing. Also, and I think most importantly, it's really actually kind of offensive to take that view because it's like it's coming up with justifications in order to make the book more palatable to a modern reader. And that just feels really offensive and insulting. Yes. And then the third approach that I think may be having a bit more popularity at the moment is people finding lots of internal evidence, bits and pieces that they feel are actual or symbolic references that they say shows the book is about slavery and specifically that it's an abolitionist book. Helena Kelly did this in Jane Austen, The Secret Radical, but there are others as well, and I won't bother to list them. I'll put a couple in the show notes. I suppose the sort of the biggest example is the people that say, ha-ha, she called it Mansfield Park. Yeah. Mansfield was the judge who wouldn't let somebody called Somerset, to be sold while he was in England. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the big examples. And then there's, you know, that Mrs Norris could be named after a slaver called John Norris. Helena Kelly, for example, has gone through and found lots and lots of references, and some of them seem maybe credible and some of them seem just ridiculous. So 
basically at the end of the day I don't think either of us really agree with this because you can mine the book for likely and unlikely references and symbols but that doesn't mean they're all intended on the part of the author and also and the other thing I feel is this is not something Jane Austen did mm. she didn't go in for symbolism but also the other thing is all of this is based on the idea that Jane Austen had to hide her pro-abolitionist messages because otherwise she wouldn't have been published but there were many many overtly abolitionist novels written at the time we won't go into that here, but I will just say that Lona Manning, who we've mentioned before, she's pretty much a friend of the podcast now, <laughs> she's actually written a series of posts arguing against this view, and I'm going to put a link to them in the show notes because yes. I think she makes some really good points. So basically, it seems to me that viewing this book as being strongly pro-abolitionist and about the abolition of slavery, it's just another way of trying to make it more palatable to a 21st century reader. Yes. And so I think, and this is what you said earlier, it seems to me that even though it's difficult, we just have to accept that Jane Austen accepted as normal aspects of her society that today we would find abhorrent. Which is what Saeed yeah, says. Yeah, exactly. Saeed says, it would be silly to expect Jane Austen to treat slavery with anything like the passion of an abolitionist or a newly liberated slave. He also says, all the evidence says that even the most routine aspects of holding slaves on a West Indian sugar plantation were cruel stuff, and everything we know about Austen and her values is at odds with the cruelty of slavery. So extrapolating from that, it's quite likely that when she made this plot decision to send Sir Thomas to the West Indies to get him out of the way, she didn't actually really think about the human implications of what that meant and the suffering it meant. In the same way that people today will go out and they'll buy cheap clothes and they won't think about the suffering that goes into making clothes they can buy so cheaply and the fact that slavery still exists today. There are millions of enslaved people in the world today. Yes. The thing I think is all the things we think of as abuses in her society that she doesn't object to. She doesn't object to a private being flogged. No. She doesn't object... No. to whatever forms of discipline yeah. all her lovely sailors yeah. and for all that we share many of her views and attitudes towards life she did not live in the 21st century she does not see things the way we do now and so that brings me to the fourth approach to dealing with slavery and Mansfield Park which I think is the one we'll be taking throughout this series which is that when we're reading Mansfield Park, we have to be aware that slavery is part of the background to the novel in general. It can't be ignored or glossed over. So it's important in general to be open to reading the novel in the light of post-colonial studies. Yeah. But we also believe that the matter of slavery doesn't influence every aspect of the novel. So we will talk about slavery where it's relevant. For example, how it informs our feelings about Sir Thomas and Fanny's question about the slave trade and what that yes. means. But there's also going to be large parts of our discussion that focus on other matters. Said's article finishes with the sentence, the task is to lose neither a true historical sense of the first, by which I think he means colonialism, nor a full enjoyment or appreciation of the second, all the while seeing both together. I think we can extend full enjoyment and appreciation not only to the aspects of the novel Saeed talks about, but also to other themes, narrative and character issues that we find in it. But that was also why we wanted to have our historical discussion of slavery right here in the first episode. So we have an understanding of 
the historical yeah. basis and the connection and the implications and the level of complicitness of yes. every character in Jane Austen before we start talking further yes. about Mansfield Park. Yep. As I said, Damien Scott very kindly reviewed this segment for us, and I want to add in some of the comments she made. Firstly, she pointed out that while slavery did also exist in Africa, they had a very different idea of it from what the Europeans had in mind when the African kings sold people to them. She also pointed out that the terrible death rates on the slaving ships were actually calculated into the cost of the voyage, which is why the people who survived were so valuable. When we were talking about the abolitionist movement, we said that it wasn't all that strong at the time Jane Austen was writing. Damien suggests that the fight for the end of slavery slowed down because people didn't see the horrors of slavery on the British island, so it was easy to ignore. She agreed with the point we made about how many people in Jane Austen's books benefited from slavery, and she said that this is why we cannot ignore the discussion of race in discussing Jane Austen. The people, the place, and the situations that she talks about are rooted in slavery. Finally, she makes the point that when we hear that Sir Thomas has property in Antigua, we think of this as land. But unfortunately, this term was also used to describe the people who were enslaved. But because it isn't explicitly stated, this gives readers a cop-out to discussing the truth of the time frame and the issues of the day because they don't want to deal with the reality. Again, I'd like to thank Damian for taking the time to give us this feedback on the segment. In terms of the pop culture versions of Mansfield Park, there actually seem to have been fewer versions of this book than there have been of Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. And Well, it's not surprising it's, yeah. when you think of the difference in appeal. Yeah, and I think particularly one of the issues has been the character of Fanny and the challenge of making her appealing to a broad audience yes. in a cinema version because so much of what you know about Fanny is interior. So unless you have lots and lots of voiceover, it's actually really hard to present that character because what everyone else sees, except maybe Edmund, is this quiet, shy, helpful, mousy, never-says-anything, yes. downtrodden character. And that doesn't really work all that well as a heroine. There have actually only been three film and television direct adaptations of the book. The first adaptation was in 1983 when the BBC was doing a lot of adaptations of classic literature. And they did one of Mansfield Park with Sylvestre Latouzel as Fanny and Nicholas Farrell as Edmund. And this one is relatively faithful to the book. Like most of those 1980s BBC ones, its budget is maybe a little bit limited. Its production values are not kind of what we expect to see today. Yeah. It's maybe a bit stilted, but it does try, I think, to present the characters as they are in the book. Who was Mrs Norris in that? Mrs Norris in that was Anna Massey. Oh, right, um, yes. Oh, yeah. Very good character. Yeah, yeah like. very good character actress. She apparently originally said she wanted to play both Mrs Norris and Lady Bertram, which <laughs> I think would have been quite a nice idea, and she certainly would have been up to the task, but yes. no, they kept her just Mrs Norris. One thing all of these adaptations do is they do start with Fanny as a child, and then at a certain point you just get a transition into Fanny as an adult. Yes. In this particular case, the transition happens when she and Edmund are reading poetry. And it goes from them as children to them as adults. Oh, I think that's Which is quite nice. nice. And something else that all the adaptations 
tend to do is they typically have some voiceover by Fanny. Yes. To try and compress some of this early stuff. Yes. And in this case, the voiceover is from her writing letters to William, which I think works quite well. Oh, yeah. Then it was done again in 1999, and this was a cinema release done by the BBC and Miramax. Fanny was played by Frances O'Connor, and Edmund was played by Johnny Lee Miller. Johnny Lee Miller was actually in the 1983 one, playing the tiny role of one of Fanny's younger brothers. Oh, right. (laughs) It was written and directed by Patricia Rosima, and I should have checked how to pronounce her surname because I probably got that wrong. One of the things I read said that she agreed to adapt Mansfield Park because she could contribute a social critique about the English gentry and their tainted source of income. And it says she wanted to explore who was paying for the party and to keep the brutal facts of slavery alive throughout the whole film. Yeah. But I didn't feel she was saying anything particularly profound about the relationship of the British gentry and slavery. So I just felt... It was very, very unsubtle. It makes Sir Thomas the villain right from the start. He's not only pro-slavery, he is just generally right from the start. He's a horrible person. Is that the one done by Harold Pinter? Yes, Harold Pinter plays Sir Thomas. Yes. Fanny in this version is much more confident. She wants to be a writer and she has been given words from Jane Austen's letters and also she has been writing some of Jane Austen's juvenilia. That's not the Fanny we know. No, that's not the Fanny of the book. Whereas in the earlier version from 1983, you had some voiceover of her writing letters to William. In this one, you have voiceover of her writing letters to Susan. But it's all a bit arch because sometimes it's voiceover, but sometimes it's her speaking straight to camera. Again, we have the transition from young Fanny to grown-up Fanny in a conversation with Edmund. But in this one, you start with her writing A History of England, which of course we recognise as Jane Austen's useful History of England, and then finishes with her grown-up reading it to Edmund. But you can never, never imagine the Fanny of the book writing that History of England. So that's that one. When I first saw it, I really didn't like it, and when I re-watched it for doing this podcast, I still didn't like it. I know some people do like it a lot and do like that it's a social critique. I fully support and engage with her idea of wanting to use this as a way of looking at, as she said, who's paying for it all. But I just feel it's not a very sophisticated social critique. The most recent version was in 2007. It was a TV movie. Fanny was played by Billy Piper who you won't know, but she was a Doctor Who companion for a while. Oh, right. And Edmund was played by Blake Ritson, who I wasn't particularly familiar with. And while I didn't like the 1999 version because I felt it was heavy-handed, I can still respect it for she was trying to do something. Yes. This one, I just felt it's not very good. Again, the character of Fanny is completely changed. Yes. The 1999, I don't agree with the way Fanny was changed, but I could see the purpose of it. It was still drawing on Jane Austen. This one was just creating a slightly hoydenish heroine who likes running around and riding horses and who never has her hair up. Her hair is always down and it is so infuriating. This covers the first three chapters in five minutes and it's lots of voiceover by Fanny, but whereas the other two had voiceover as a letter and often drawing on text from the book. This just has voiceover and it's nothing from the book. It's just this And is she a child? Yeah, again, it starts as a child. Yes. And in this one, Fanny the child and Edmund the child are outdoors playing shuttlecock 
and yeah. then it transitions into Fanny the adult and Edmund the adult are outdoors playing shuttlecock. Yeah. So those are the three film and TV straight adaptations. Then, in terms of modernisations, there have been far fewer modernisations of Mansfield Park than of the other books. One that often comes up when you look it up is... In 1990, there was a film called Metropolitan done by Whit Stillman. It was apparently his first film. It's about young people in New York on the debutante circle. Yes. And I would say it is inspired by Mansfield Park, but in no way, shape or form would I say it is a modernised version of the book. Some connections I see. First of all, the concept of principle, and the word principle is used multiple times throughout the film. Mm-hmm. There is one character who is significantly less wealthy than the others and is kind of taken up by this group. A girl or a boy? A, a boy. And another thing is that he and the most principled female character have several conversations about Jane Austen in general and Mansfield Park in particular. All right. I did enjoy watching it, but I do not think this film really counts as a modernisation of the book. Yes. But what does count as a modernisation of the book is the web series Oh yeah. called From Mansfield with Love. It was done in 2014 by a group called Foot in the Door Theatre, founded in 2007 by a group of third-year students from the University of Winchester. I actually really enjoyed this web series. Even though they were amateur, I found most of the actors did good performances. I do have to say, once again, Fanny Price is not the Fanny Price of the book, but I have a lot less issue with that somehow when it's a modernisation than when it's an adaptation. Maybe that's just me. The concept behind this one is that Fanny's brother is in the Navy and often doesn't have good internet connection, so he sent her a video <laughs> so he sent her a video camera and said, Can you make videos so that I can watch them when I do have internet connection? Yes. Mansfield is a big hotel. Fanny is well, she was called Frankie in this. She knows the family, but she's also essentially working there as a maid. Mrs. Norris is her boss. Yes. And I thought they did a lovely job of bringing in bits from the book in sometimes in unexpected contexts. And I really did enjoy that series. In terms of modernisations in books, I've talked before about the Austen Project and its versions. Well, it ran out of steam before doing Mansfield Park. There have been various other modernisation books, most of which I haven't read. I'll put a couple of in the show notes. I'll try and read a couple of them, but none of them sound all that exciting. Actually, you wouldn't have ever read it. There is a D.E. Stevenson that's obviously based on Mansfield oh, Park. Okay. I'll see if I can dig up the name. One thing I said before, particularly in terms of modernisations and books, was I was going to make a concerted effort to try and read a lot more non-white versions of the book. Well, yeah. when it comes to Mansfield Park, there just don't seem to be any. I haven't been able to find even any fan fiction that is putting it in a different cultural context. In terms of continuations of the book, one of the first Jane Austen sequels I ever read was Joan Aiken's Mansfield Revisited, which is from 1985. I think that was at about the point there was suddenly a boom starting in Jane Austen sequels. Well, that's the time when all those BBC films were being made. Yeah. My memory of Mansfield Revisited was, it was readable, I finished it. It was predominantly about Susan and her life after coming to Mansfield Park. Oh, well, that's quite interesting. So, yeah, I might try and reread it, but as I think I've said before, while I love modernisations, I'm not that big a fan of continuations. No. 
And the last category is the variations on the book. There's a lot of Jane Austen fan fiction that does all sorts of variations and far too much for me to read all of it. So just a couple I wanted to call out. Amanda Granger's series where she does the diaries of all the main heroes. Yes. She does one called Edmund Bertram's Diary. Right. And the thing that struck me most when I read it was what you get is this picture of a young man who is so unaware of everything that's happening around him. <laughs> yes. Another one that I should probably mention is a trilogy of books called the Mansfield Trilogy written by Lona Manning. She picks up the story just after Lover's Vows and she takes it on a completely different path and she uses it as a way to explore lots and lots of themes about what was happening in the 19th century. She doesn't have Fanny married to Edmund and that probably is actually a bit of a theme with some of these variations. I'm, I know there are quite a lot that have been written that involve Fanny and Henry Crawford ending up married because a lot of people want Fanny oh, and yes. Henry Crawford to end up married. Just something we'll talk about later. Yes, listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet, and me, Ellen. In our next episode, we'll be looking at chapters four to seven of Mansfield Park. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website, readingjaneaustin.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.